Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings in one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this on Monday, April 22nd, which is not only Earth Day, but also the day after Easter and the fourth day of Passover. First Cedar of this year started right after nightfall on the 19th, and Passover will continue through April 27th. And for those of you who are observing Cedar this year and making do with matzah and maro, I, I got two pronunciations on this thing. You know, I got mare and maror. Sorry, folks, I'm a God-fearing agnostic, which means I'm pretty much a moron when it comes to spiritual matters. But anyway, I came across a story that I thought you'd all enjoy. It's hard to believe we're seven months now since the PlayStation 4 version of Spider-Man first went on sale September 7th. And nine million copies of this thing sold to date. And every time I call my daughter Alice, she and Noah are still wandering around the virtual version of New York City. And speaking of which, that's what today's story is about. That people have been just amazed at the, the insane level of detail. This past week, in honor of Passover... Elin Ruskin, who's one of the senior programmers for Insomniac Games, the guys who actually developed the Spider-Man game for PS4, he tweeted out, well, I guess you'd call it an Easter egg, though I don't know if you can actually do that with something that's associated with Passover. Anyway, uh, here's what Elin tweeted. This feels like the right time to mention an Easter egg that everyone's passed over so far. These guys don't work on Saturday, and... The image that accompanied uh, Ruskin's tweet showed Spidey interacting with two Orthodox Jews. And sure enough, if you fire up your copy of Spider-Man for the PS4 on a Saturday, and then you could wander the length and breadth of this game's hyper-detailed virtual version of Manhattan, and you're never going to see an Orthodox Jew. That's because the Orthodox Jewish citizens of this virtual version of New York City obey the exact same religious laws as real-life Orthodox Jews do around the world, which means on Saturday they observe Shabbat, a day of rest. And Now, mind you, in order for this Easter egg to actually occur while you're playing Marvel's Spider-Man game on the PS4, the clock on your console has to be set for the proper date and time. And while we're speaking of Spidey, do you remember from last week's show, Aaron, where we were talking about how... Kevin Feige had said that Avengers Endgame was going to be the final film of the Infinity Saga, and, and which was why it was so nice and appropriate that they had that Stan Lee cameo to put into the last film. And now, just disregard everything else Garen and I said at that last show, because while Kevin was in Shanghai this past week for a fan event, he said, well, actually, Spider-Man Far From Home is now the very last film of this portion of the Marvel and Infinity saga. He's now moved the line in the sand one movie further for the Endgame mm -hmm. saga. And at this point, I, I really don't care where the end line is anymore. I mean, I feel it should be Endgame. That's where it logically ends mm -hmm. for me. But really, I consider the MCU to be one cohesive whole. It's not going to stop after Endgame. It's going to mm -hmm. keep going. So to put this, you know, artificial boundary and say this phase one, phase two, phase three, and this is all the Infinity Saga now, and it's just like, hey, man, uh, Iron Man can still appre be appreciated for just being a great mm -hmm. Iron Man movie. 
Thor Ragnarok is an excellent Thor movie. It, they don't have to be these, you know, little puzzle pieces of this big, huge galactic picture. It could just be, why, why not just enjoy the pieces for what they are, man? Great movies. So if he wants to move the line around, that's fine. I don't care. I'm I'm just happy to have an mm-hmm. MCU, and I'm happy that it's going to keep going after Endgame. And if he wants to call the next three movies after that Phase 4B mm-hmm. or whatever, I don't care, man. Just keep shoveling it at me. Okay. I wonder, you know, he mentioned that the all of the Infinity Saga films had a Stanley cameo, and I'm kind of hoping that if now he's saying that Spider-Man Far From Home is the last film in the Infinity Saga that I'm kind of hoping there's still another Stan Lee cameo somewhere. I don't think so, because I think they would have fessed that up a while ago. I I think they recently had said that Endgame is the last Stan Lee cameo. If they had another trick in the bag or bullet in the gun, so to speak, they wouldn't have made that announcement. So even if they had, I think they've made a pretty firm decision that that this is the proper place to cap Stan's cameos. I guess so. I just, you know, I I have to say that I'm going to a press screening of Endgame tomorrow, and there's a part of me that's dreading the three hour and ten minutes, not just because, again, it's a very tiny bladder, but also this, really, this is it. You know, that last time we'll get to see Stan up on the big screen. Though the Russo brothers say maybe that's not the case. They're out doing publicity for, for Endgame. And they were talking with the Indian Times. And Anthony mentioned that he and his brother Joe are fascinated by the life of Stan Lee. And we're actually developing a little something that has to do with his work in the history of Marvel. We're not ready to present it or talk about it yet it's it's more of a documentary and you'd heard something about this or yeah i think kevin had been talking about this thing that they're putting together and from what that quote was all about it was that they were going to be examining all of stan's cameos throughout the entire mcu and that they had put together like some of the behind the scenes shots some alternate takes of jokes that he didn't use and if you have the ant-man and the wasp they have some great alternate takes of things that Stan said that didn't make it into the final cut of the movie. And it's not like they were, you know, dud jokes. It's like when you get 10 golden mm-hmm. Easter eggs, you got to choose, you know, only one can go in. You can't sit there and let Stan do five rapid fire jokes. You got to you got to pick one and go with it. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing all of that behind the scenes material. But as Kevin was saying uh, during this interview that, I think it's going to be in the Endgame hmm. Blu-ray. So uh, he was talking about how he's getting all choked up seeing Stan after all of these years of doing these cameos and how the the loss of Stan re-impacted him all over again watching this material as it was as being t- put together. Okay. And, and speaking of the, the Russo brothers, last week some major spoilers began making their way around the web and it you know, and I know, Aaron, you're very disciplined about this. You do not, you know, you try yeah. to go into these movies first, so you're you're not out mm-hmm. online looking for stuff or about these movies out ahead of time. Whereas I, because of the job, am trying to pick up little bits and pieces, but but not blow the whole thing. But evidently, on some corners of the web, this was out. Everything was out there, or damn near everything. So I kind of mm-hmm. had to back off on a lot of my usual traps 
online because I really did want to enjoy this one. But the Russo brothers actually put out a statement online. Uh, they, they took to social media to try to appeal to those who were looking to spoil the movie. And this is what they said. Please know that the two of us, along with everyone involved in Endgame, have worked tirelessly for the past three years for the sole intention of delivering a surprising and emotionally powerful conclusion to the Infinity Saga. Because so many of you have invested your time, your hearts, and your souls into these stories, we're once again asking for your help. When you see Endgame in the coming weeks, please don't spoil it for others, the same way you wouldn't want it spoiled for you. And then they then ended that post with a hashtag that reads, hashtag, don't spoil the endgame. <laughs> and then I, I love their, their final note on the message. And remember, Thanos still demands your silence. Given the, the fields you work in, have, have you been hearing anything about spoilers or that sort of thing? My wife was able to notify me that there were some heavy duty spoilers mm. about endgame and, you know, the day mm. that they hit. So it was my chance to step away from the internet for like a good 48 hours to try to stay away from that and, and not get that information. Cause I don't, I don't want to know about a scene that happens out of mm -hmm. context. You know, I mean, if it's a three hour movie, there is context mm -hmm. in all of this where things will matter based on the moments that came before it. And if you just cherry pick a cool moment that's three quarters of the way through the movie, it will not have the emotional resonance that it should have had you just waited and watched the entire movie. So I don't want those moments, their, their impact mm -hmm. lessened in any way by getting any of that information beforehand, I'll gladly pass. And I think, you know, watching an advertising or the trailer is completely different because the Russos got to have a say in what material gets picked mm -hmm. for that. So they know they're not spoiling the overall story arc or any important emotional beats. So that's one thing. I have no problems watching trailers and ads, but when someone goes online and posts scenes out of context and, and is just trying to get stuff out there because everybody wants to mm -hmm. see something, that's the wrong boat to be in for me. But at the same time, sometimes people will put stuff out ahead of whether it's a film or a new television series or that sort of thing to gain people's interest, get them to, to circle around and sample it. And uh, Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, which isn't a ride at Disney's California Adventure theme park, but rather season three of the Marvel animation series, which began airing in the Disney XD block back in September of 2015. Uh, the gimmick is when the show comes back, Star-Lord and the crew of the Milano, who are now on the run from the Collector, in order to escape them, they all jump into something called the Black Vortex Mirror, which then separates Peter, Gamora, Rocket, Groot, and Drax, and sends them all to different worlds. And the way that they're going to delineate that these are truly different worlds on the show is they're going with different animation styles. So there'll be, for example, Gamora ends up in a, ch a world where the look is that of a children's book illustration. Drax ends up in a comic book, and Peter, it's kind of interesting giving that Christopher Pratt does all that voice work for the Lego movies, but evidently he ends up in a CG stop-motion world. As an animation fan, I, I will at least sample the show to to see all of those different looks. Now, the challenge is remembering that when it's on, of course, I guess I, I could remember better if I had a watch. But just today, Nancy sent me information sent to her 
from Disney Consumer Products, and it's about a series of Marvel-themed watches that Citizen is now offering, and they're handsome things, Aaron. They really are. There's a a Spider-Man, a Captain America, a Captain Marvel. But the thing at the price point? Yeah, they're stainless steel, but the Spider-Man is $395. It's supposedly water-resistant to 100 meters. The Black Panther one goes for $550, and it's resist water-resistance to 200 meters, and it I, I guess that's the only way I'd envision ever wearing this watch is if I had to swim down 200 meters to a pirate's chest and collect gold, because that was the only way I'd be able to pay for that. I mean, am I not... Watches actually cost this much these days? Yeah, they do. And good ones cost ah. more than that. That's... I mean, you got to think, there's moving parts. I, I, I get that, but if I want to find tiny. out what time it is these days, I look at my laptop, I look at my iPhone, mm. I, I can't honestly remember the last time I wa- a, a wore a watch. My main watch is a $400 okay. face, and I think it's an inexpensive mm. watch. Like, it's, it's not mm. flashy at all. It's just got a bunch of different functions. Or as they call them in watches, complications. <laughs> okay. um, seriously, that's that's what they call it. Like if you have mm. a stopwatch and a you know chronometer and all okay. these different things are called complications in mm. in watches. And uh, I needed a stopwatch for timing for ads, this, sixty okay. seconds and that stuff. That makes sense for you for your world. You would need that. that's a tool. Okay. Get yeah, on. exactly. So, I mean, I, I use my watch more frequently and a bit differently than the mm. average, you know, office worker okay. would use it. So, yeah, when when I would buy a watch, I usually had a couple of different complications that I required for it. And it was usually around, you know, three or four hundred dollars easily before I'd mm. blink at it. You know, it's when I'd start getting into the thousand dollars. I go, wait, whoa, whoa, mm. whoa, wait. I'm not money, man. I just okay. need a watch. Okay. Well, I have to tell you, if I were going to be spending three or four hundred dollars on something, the thing you sent me the link to tonight, I would be sorely tempted by. These busts or these figures, these one six figures from Sideshow Collectibles. Oh, my God. Yeah, they're they're actually made by mm-hmm. Hot Toys. And I collect that specific okay. brand because they are mm-hmm. immaculate. I've got a it's the Joker Deluxe 2.0 version mm-hmm. from Hot Toys, but when I took a picture of it, Apple immediately identified it as Heath Ledger, like without any question, like, oh, that's Heath Ledger. The sculpt is so incredibly detailed and lifelike that it's very spooky. Speaking of which, the figures you sent me images of of Thanos from, from Endgame, oh my god, the likeness is crazy. Well, that's the whole thing about Hot Toys is because they are so immaculate with their mm-hmm. detail. And there are some toys out there where they take artistic mm-hmm. license with things that may be in the movie or may not be in the movie. You know, it's like Spider-Man's dune buggy, you know, very rarely is that Mm -hmm. ever a thing. So with Hot Toys, it's screen accurate. Whatever they do, you saw Mm -hmm. in the film. And so I was comparing the uh, Infinity Wars Mm -hmm. Thanos, which is basically Thanos in a T-shirt with an Infinity Gauntlet. Because really, if you think about it, after he takes down Thor, he unsnaps his armor, takes down the Hulk, and he's rocking the rest of that movie with basically a gauntlet and a purple T-shirt. You're not wrong. And so then when you look at the Hot Toys Thanos figure coming out for Mm -hmm. Endgame, 
He's got all of his armor on. He's got his helmet on. He's got his leg armor on. He's got his gauntlet, obviously. But then he's got a double-bladed mm-hmm. sword. And I'm thinking, okay, look, in the first movie, if he just kicked all of the Avengers off of the planet with a snap in mm-hmm. his T-shirt, what kind of madness are we about to get where he's like, oh, this requires not only the gauntlet that can allow me to just manipulate all of time mm-hmm. and space, but I also need a sword and my armor, because I'm going to get up close and personal on these guys this time. It just looks like this time around, if you thought the last movie was devastating, it looks like they're going to go through some serious mud to get to the finish line on this movie, just based on the way that Thanos is decked out in this Hot Toys image uh, that you can find on Sideshow Collectibles. It looks just crazy angry. This is why I love having you doing this show with you, because again, I looked at the figure and thought it was cool, and then then put it together that wow he is he's loaded for bear so yeah. again it's amazing how much you can learn about a movie by examining the toys for that film but of course you know you could learn a lot from listening directly to the directors of the movie which uh, thanks to Drew Taylor we're going to do right after this commercial break This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. As we're recording today's show, the Endgame premiere is actually underway right now in L.A. For the last film, okay, the second to the last film of the Infinity Saga, the Walt Disney Company, to borrow a phrase from John Hammond, has spared no expense. They've not only rented out the entire Los Angeles Convention Center, they've outfitted that building for one night only with a custom IMAX screen. Just today, Deadline is reporting that Earning a billion dollars worldwide over its opening weekend actually isn't out of the question for Avengers Endgame, but that's largely because this Russo Brothers movie begins screening in China starting tomorrow night at midnight, which will significantly turbocharge Endgame's overall box office take around the globe. Also, Jim, to Mm -hmm. add to that, I also read today that AMC, some AMC theaters were going to be open 24 hours to show Endgame in the overnight hours as well. So that whole problem of you can only show so many showings or screenings per day has now been opened. That window is opened up considerably with a 24 hour schedule. Well, again, what must it be like to work in a movie that is this big? Drew Taylor got the chance to find out when earlier this month on April 7th, to be exact, He took part in the global press junket for Avengers Endgame, which was held at the Intercontinental Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. We're going to start off with Anthony Joe Russo, is that correct? Yeah, and Drew gets the Russo brothers in his firing line. He comes out with guns blazing right off on question number one. I want to know about the pre-production animatic process and a lot of the, like, the people that don't like these movies as much say everything's sort of thought out ahead of time and you guys just kind of come on set. But I was curious, you've done more of these movies than any other filmmakers, right? So what was that process like for you? Dispel some of these things? To the degree that everything is all thought out ahead of time, it's uh, we're directing what's thought out ahead of time, right. as much as we're directing what happens on set. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, it's extremely extensive. Obviously, these movies are they're so complicated, whether on a physical production level, if you're doing real stunts, or on a visual effects level, and all that stuff. In order to look what great and be good, and also be safe in the case in the case of stunts, but um, you know, you have to very thoroughly plan for it. So we go through a process where we go through very extensive drawing. We do a lot of traditional storyboarding, but we also do very very extensive animation, mm -hmm. what we call previs or where we track all the sequences that way and sort of develop it and it almost and really what it is it's one one it is a tool for us to figure out how we want to shoot it what we want it, how we, what we want the movie to be on a visual level but then it also becomes a document in the same way that the script is a document that tells everybody what to do all the actors know their lines the production designer knows whether we're inside the building outside the building etc this is also a document that tells everybody involved in the movie how we're shooting something right and that's really what it is, and that's how we treat it. So once Joe and I get to the point where we feel like, oh yeah, we've got this previs in the zone of what we want, how we want to execute it, meaning like, is it telling people the scope of what we're going after? Is it seeing as much of the set as we, we want to have prepared? Is it seeing the number of extras that we want to have available to us? Is it sort of showing the kind of camera movements that we want everybody to be prepared to do, et cetera? Once we get it to that point, then we're done with it. Then the, that document is good enough for us to go to set with. When we go to set, we have this process by which we basically throw it out when we get to set. Really? Because, yeah, because when you're on set, whether it's a stage or an actual location, you have things there available to you for the first time that you never had available to you before in the, in the creative process of planning this. You know, now these things are real. And not only are they real, but now you're actually seeing them in relationship to one another. And most importantly, you're finally seeing the actors in those spaces um, interacting with them. So we tend to go through a very thorough rehearsal process on set where we'll start our shoot day, where we'll bring the actors out, we'll have all the tools there. Typically, we tell the crew to just take a break so that we can have space to, to work. And we'll just start playing with the scene. We'll start talking about how we thought we would lay it out. And sometimes the way we thought we would lay it out is already different from what the previs is because Joe and I have been scouting the actual location as the elements have all come together over the previous couple days. And we've got new ideas about how we want to lay it out in that space. And then we'll go from there. And the great thing is, like, our team is so good that they can adapt to things like that. Right. Our visual effects capacity is so high that we could use visual effects to plug holes that we may have created by changing okay. the plan in such a way. But yeah, but that's basically our process. So, but that document is critical. Otherwise, you would never be able to have a team this large be ready to actually execute something. But nobody's going, where's that shot from the previs? And ILM's not going, we've worked never. six months on this thing. And no, I mean, yeah. we turn over. Never. What we do yeah. if there's a fully CG shot mm -hmm. for a sequence, we'll turn it over prior to going to set because we're not shooting anything for it. Okay. But that gets approved through an iterative process where we will go through, you know, seven or eight passes at the shot, and then when we're happy with it, then we say, "Great, this can go off and get started," and then we'll shoot the rest of this when we get to set. Okay, and how how crucial are the sort of like second unit guys? I know well, they're, uh, they're the John Wick guys were on yeah. Civil War, right? Yeah. Um, We've talked, there's been a lot of talk about like there not being a stunt category at the Oscars, and I was just wondering what you guys well, thought were. Sad. I mean, I think it's sad because it's a it's it's a highly technical craft and like very specific and requires an incredible amount of artistry. And I think second unit and movies of the scale are invaluable, whether it's Oscar, it's Star Wars, or it's Lord of the Rings, or right. you know, 
um, uh, there's a lot of uh, great work being done by the second year. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about the sort of visual language of this movie? Is it sort of the same as Infinity War? Because I remember you guys talking about sort of the immediacy of, of the Captain America movies, and there's a little bit more frenetic, and then you were sort of doing more elegant kind of stuff with this, less handheld and all that. Is it sort of a carryover of that visual style? I mean, or? We won't, we we're, won't we're talk about really styles. Oh, okay. We won't get specific, but we'll say that like the trap with movies like this where they're you know, back-to-back and tied together through serialized narrative is... They can feel like the same movie. Yeah. Uh, and one of the ways that you can differentiate movies is through tone, and another is through point of view, and this movie has a different tone and a different point of view than Infinity Okay. So setting off on these two movies, has it turned out to be harder than you thought, easier than you thought? Was there something that maybe surprised you in terms of challenges? I think I mean, challenges, yeah. certainly, I mean, without question, the you know, physical uh, aspect of it. Shooting two movies back to back for a year straight in two weeks in between movies is, you know, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, working in television for so long prepared us for the ruling hours, mm-hmm. but it's not something that we'd ever wish on anyone. It, it, it can cause presidential aging. It accelerates exponentially your, uh, the aging process. So, um, uh, that's the, the one thing we've learned is that like this is probably a once in a lifetime yeah you would never do something like this again no, no I mean you guys are doing a much smaller movie after this but is there sort of an allure of coming back to this world or the, the scale of this I mean I, I guess there isn't anything that's the scale of no I mean we grew up like it's so funny because when we grew up film fans like we, we sort of had a, a sort of two dual loves one where the sort of big Hollywood epics that everyone else loved. And then we also had like sort of this like geeky art movie side to ourselves mm-hmm. that like we loved the, the obscure movies that most, most people have never heard of. So, but yeah, so we love like, you know, making movies at this scale where you can engage global audiences is thrilling to us, you know, to be able to craft stories like this. And we also love the tools that are available to, to make great movies like this. At this budget level, so this is some. This is something that I think we will return to again and again as filmmakers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're definitely going to go through a little bit of a phase, a cycle here where we are using different muscles for a little while. I know this this morning you kind of talked about you know when you actually kind of get feedback on these movies. But were you surprised by the reaction to Infinity War? I mean, yeah. there hasn't really been a movie like that that everyone has talked about like that. I can't. I mean, I think it's interesting. Yeah. Is really it's like a very simple math to it. It's disruption. Right. It's taking our expectations that, okay, it's one of the most expensive movies ever made, and commercial movies are commercial because they end optimistically. So the expectation is that we're going to get an optimistic ending. Right. And then we play on those beats throughout the entire film. It's very calculated how we're, you know, trying to set up Thor for victory in the movie, or your, your belief that, like, he could potentially come to save the day with his his magic axe and um, and then we pull the rug out from underneath and I think that that was that the preconceptions of the audience going into that theater about what kind of movie that was and what the expectations have been for 50 years of commercial storytelling uh, and that we uh, we played against those expectations what caused that response do you have a favorite response from anybody? Yeah, Ruffalo told this crazy story yeah, where he is in New York on a Friday night of opening weekend. Uh-huh. He's in a cap and glasses and he's in the theater with his 16-year-old son and all of his buddies. 
And he said it got to the end of the movie and the lights went up and he said the whole theater just sat there in silence. And then people started to get angry. It was sort of a New York crowd, you know. And then he said a guy got so angry that he ripped his shirt off his body and started screaming at the uh, screen, why, why? And then Ruffalo said at that point he felt like he needed to leave the theater lest he be recognized and, and his safety be checked. So, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Have you guys been involved in the marketing for this? I mean, I can't imagine, I cannot think of a movie that has shown so little before a, a wide release like this. Was that always the intention? It was always yeah. the intention. Okay. We talked about it quite a bit, yeah. Because really? everybody, because this is so unconventional, and of course there is a level of risk involved, right. you know, so at a financial level for Disney. Um, but yeah, yeah, we've talked about it extensively, but everybody was very much on board with the idea that, like, the story needs to be protected. The, you know, the integrity of the, the viewing experience, the audience needs to be protected. Yeah. You know? Especially in a culture that's really driven to spoil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also amazing because there are so many toys and books and things that have to be done. Oh yeah, uh, you know, right years in advance. That. Yeah, that's very complicated for them to like think yeah. about all that. It's interesting. It's so weird though, is that like toys? Sometimes toys will be based on drafts of scripts that we threw out years ago, or they just make a toy because they think it's going to sell. So it's a, a, sometimes there'll be spoilers with that stuff, but a lot of times it's. It's, uh, you know, it's its own... Phantom limbs. Of, yeah, is like that what happened with the Hulk and... coming out of the Hulkbuster? Was that an earlier yeah, draft? Yeah, it was a, it was a yeah. phantom limb of, like, an idea we explored a year earlier, uh -huh. you know? But that's the lead time that yeah. takes for toys. And then the idea goes away, and then there's a toy out there. <laughs> you know, so ultimately, we, we don't get that worried about it. And frankly, beyond, like, your most ravenous fan base, people aren't paying attention right. to that level of right. detail, you know? Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, guys. Yeah, Have a good talk to you after the movie comes out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, I like what I'm hearing so far, but before we deconstruct every last syllable, we're going to jump to the second interview with the writers of Endgame, which are Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. Now, I want to prepare our listeners for just a quick second. While on location for this recording, a fire truck passes by in the background of the audio. And if you're driving... Please do not panic. The sirens you are hearing are in the recording. They're not behind you. So please don't cause an accident thinking that there's a fire truck behind you. It's in the recording. Now, with that said, Drew starts off by channeling a Jim Hill comment right up front. Agent Carter super fan right here. Oh, so, thank you. Bless. Come on. It's Disney Plus. We got to get it. We got to bring it back. Uh, you know, they need from stuff. your mouth. You know. No kidding. They need uh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm so fascinated by the sort of writing process for these two movies. You don't have to say that. I am because, like, what is the like, what is the blank page look like? Are there directives that are sort of coming down the pike in terms of positions of characters? Or, no, I no? mean, there's there are places they were left in their last movie, right? Which are approximate. You know, there's you have the leeway of picking up two seconds after that movie ended, or two years after that movie mm -hmm. ended. I mean, they kind of just did said use everyone. Okay. Or you have you have the opportunity to use everyone. Okay. You don't have to use right. everyone. Right. Well, uh, but it's it's Infinity War, yeah. so that means use the, use a lot of people. Yeah. Stakes are high. It's Thanos. It's Six Stones, and two movies they should feel radically different from each other. Go. Each half of it, but you're writing yeah. it as one. Well, document. no, we wrote it as two movies simultaneously. One. 
story. Okay. But very much not a uh, press pause. Yeah. Press play. Right. right. That movie ended and had a you know had a dramatic arc that ended. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And this one has one that does the same. We didn't want it to be one big thing that you cut down the middle. Right. And that movie had we had the opportunity to have such a definitive event at the end of that that it really redefined the movie that came out. Right? Okay. And it seems tonally, even though we aren't allowed to really talk about what it is, or right. we've, we've mm. seen cumulatively, I think, eight minutes of footage this morning. <laughs> so, uh, but it does seem like it, there is a tonal shift. Was what, that part of the appeal yeah, as well? Yeah, I mean, like, no. um, when you start reading the script for Endgame, it's unlike any other page one, or it's unlike many page ones, mm-hmm. right? Because there's an anticipation, given what page 139 was or whatever right. was over here. Like, holy crap, how are they... Where are they going to pick up? How are they going to handle this? How are they going to deal with this fallout? Mm-hmm. And that was part of the appeal to this was this sort of mature storytelling. Like, you get, heroes get kicked in the teeth all the time, usually at the end of Act 2 and for about five minutes. Right. This is meant to really sting. Right. And like, and how are these people all going to deal and deal with it differently? Right. Yeah. And, and you guys have said before that, that the script went through a lot of changes. I mean, that, that the snap happened halfway uh, through the first yeah. one. And I mean, know. we... It never it was never written that way. Okay, we, we just we were outlining. We're toyed, going. you know, moving it around and seeing what effect it would have. Yeah. just as sort of R and D, but it quickly became apparent that dramatically that was the only place to put it. Where, you know, you can't you can't do anything worse afterward. Right. You know, you don't want to do some half-hearted. You know, look, there's a ray of sunlight. I mean, yeah. you know. It was, the room had movie one on one wall, movie two on the other wall, right? Yeah. And so there was a point where movie one had so much stuff on it, that yeah. you kind of went, well, what if the snap happened on this wall over here? Right. And everyone said, no, take stuff out over here, make sure it happens on this wall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, that's the other thing, is like, you're, you're given the, the leniency to put every single character in there. How does that... How does an actual three act sort of narrative come out of that? Because I don't think there has ever been a movie like the first one with, with so many characters. Yes. A lot of experimentation. Okay. Um, yeah. And the leeway <coughs> to to screw up. Okay. Freedom to not have to introduce people in a traditional way, because in many ways, Act One was eighteen previous movies. Mm-hmm. You know, so that uh, very few people get like what's Cap's introductory scene. Right. He steps out of the shadows on a train station 40 minutes into the movie. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Tony kind of gets one mm-hmm. where he's talking with Pepper for 90 seconds. Yeah. Like uh, Doctor Strange gets 15 seconds talking about a sandwich and yeah. then the movie starts. So it, we had the freedom to do this sort of rapid jump start. Uh, and that's, you know, you wouldn't normally do that. Right. But you almost had to do that to get everything in. Can you talk about the kind of like creative culture at Marvel? Are you, because I understand that. Things are, like, while you're writing the script, Previs is developing. I mean, like, what is that process like? It's it's very, one, it's very open. In terms of, like, ideas being shared back and forth? In terms of ideas being shared (coughs) and and the different strata that the ideas come from, you know. And if it's a good idea, it can come from the PA or it can come from Kevin, you know. It might probably get to you. And a big willingness to try anything and to 
to potentially crash the whole MCU <laughs> in this right. movie and have to pick it up in the next one. You know? Right. And, I mean, just in terms of the visual effects, like, they make everything... Between, between Dan DeLue and Ryan Myrding, it everything becomes real in a way that it... You know, we are, we are a theoretical lab, uh-huh. that room, and then they'll come back with... Oh, well, here's what we're thinking of Thanos, and it's like, holy sh**. <laughs> it is a so that affects the writing. huge yeah. leap forward and a huge... When we saw Thanos for the first time, with, you know, actually Josh playing Thanos, mm-hmm. it gives you such confidence to write even more for that character, knowing, like, oh, you can, you don't have to you can fully yeah. emote right. and get everything across that a, that a human could. Well, one person that was sort of in the creative family that was on the outs for a little bit, but is back, is, is James Gunn. So mm. are you guys happy that he's kind of back in the, the family? And did he have sort of, uh, is his stamp on, on Infinity, or on uh, uh, Endgame? Not on Endgame. No, Not on, okay. he didn't have really many Guardians left. That's true, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, but I think it's only right that he's back. Yeah. You know. Well, thanks so much for talking with me, guys. It was Thank a real, you, sir. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Nice to meet you. Cheers. Good luck with this movie. I hope, some, you know, I hope somebody sees it. Yeah. Okay, so what do you want to start with, Jim? You want to start with the Russos? You want to start with, with the writers? Uh, we're, I mean, there's a lot of... A lot of juicy stuff to talk about here. It's a lot of meat on this bone. Um, Let's talk about the Russo's previs right up front because that was one of the very first things that they mm-hmm. talked about. And I, I do like the fact that, you know, you do a lot of previs to get a great idea of what you're doing. But they did talk a bit about how when they're actually on the location, those shots may change to accommodate the location they're at. I mean, if you've got a beautiful mm-hmm. building, you know, like if you're at the the Louvre in Paris or something like that, you're going to want to showcase that building a little bit in those shots, Mm. right? So allowing for their set or their location to organically change a shot or two, uh, I I think that's smart filmmaking. Oh, absolutely. But at the same time, I love how Joe and Anthony actually pay tribute to their crew. Because, you know, face it, when you... You've done storyboarding, you've done the previs, and you arrive on set and go, hey, we're going to change it up. And those guys can roll with the punches and and give you the setups that you need. I mean, those are professionals. Not everybody could handle changing the batting order like that at the last minute. I do think that the Russos dodged the cinematic style question that Drew threw at them, like Muhammad Ali. They don't really want to talk about the overall... They did say that they want to keep the look Mm -hmm. the same, but the tone different. Now, if you then jump to the conversation with the writers, they were talking about how they're making two different movies that are going to be tonally Mm -hmm. different. And I almost think that the Russos may have had a chance to take advantage Mm of changing their filming style to match that different tone. But I also understand them wanting to be directly connected at the hip to Infinity War. So they don't want it to radically look different. I think the cinematic language, you know, it's one of those calls. Do you keep the cinematic language Mm -hmm. the same to keep it directly connected to the previous movie? Or do you roll with the tone if it's drastically different? Do you start doing more maybe handheld camera shots? They're a little bit more shaky and uncertain uh, versus a more cinematic steady pan well the other thing i enjoyed when the writers were talking when when they were talking about working on infinity war and how your audience is so familiar with these characters 
Doctor Strange basically got a 15 second introduction before they dropped him right into the story and I think exactly and he was talking about a sandwich you know, I mean, that's not yeah. character development <laughs> I mean that it just kind of gives you a glimpse to his attitude mentality for like right a total of 15 seconds and only a writer knows exactly how many seconds they got to talk about a sandwich before the action had to start there you go so there we go. yeah it was it was really uh, very revealing and it's something that we talked about before the shorthand of mm-hmm. it all now like when Spidey comes in he's like wizard stone mm-hmm. people from space go get them yep. and that translates into the whole story arc for the the opening act and so i they do kind of have a benefit especially now going into Endgame. i mean how much intro do you think any of these characters are really going to get i mean we're going to hit the ground at a sprint right i like how they sort of protected the mystery of it but it just sort of like you have to decide are you picking up the story two minutes after the last movie or are you picking up the story two years i'm betting two years where do you say i think we're at the two-year point Right, yeah. But I love that they reflected that, okay, that's a different kind of writing. That's a different kind of story. That That's not a world you can set up in 15 seconds with a story about a sandwich. So different writing. And I always enjoy these sort of pop-the-hood interviews. Drew did such a wonderful job getting these guys to talk about what it was like to work on a movie of, of this scale. I'm kind of glad when uh, the Russo brothers were talking about how they were, I don't want to say quite defying expectations, mm-hmm. but dodging expectations, where Hollywood always has the happy ending, mm-hmm. and this is how it had the impact, and then you jump to the writer's side of the interview, and they were talking about how the snap mm-hmm. was moved around from place to place in the development of the story. Mm-hmm. And you think about how tragic almost it would have been had they not done exactly what they did and kept it right at the end like in the last couple of minutes where it's like hey man there's no runtime left to fix this Mm -hmm. this is how this is going to end suckers and you're sinking in your theater seat going oh no we lost you know i mean that's where it has the most weight if you do that halfway through the film Mm -hmm. it's like well we still got an hour and a half to fix this Mm -hmm. and if you wait until the next movie then you still haven't had any consequence. You don't have that dread to carry for an entire year. I mean, that snap had to go at the end of Infinity War. It just had to. Mm-hmm. So I'm almost surprised that they moved it around. I've Actually, I'm not surprised because you do a lot of idea tinkering and playing mm-hmm. while you have the opportunity. You know, the ideas are free. It doesn't cost anything to, you know, scribble the pencil across the paper. It's when you're in development and you're actually building models and, and drawing stuff, you know. So in the idea process, it's okay. But, man, that was a surprising revelation to find out the snap could have been somewhere else in these two movies besides the end of Infinity War. Now, what did you make of, of them talking about their, their writing process? Were they literally in that room that's floor to ceiling covered with notes about, okay, who's what, where, when? Well, you have to. Mm-hmm. You have to know where all of your characters left off at. Mm-hmm. And even if they're a pile of dust at the moment, you need to know where that pile of dust first occurred. So you might possibly have some logic for when they come back. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it would almost seem weird right now if Stark leaves Thanos' homeworld, Titan, 
to come back to Earth, and then they undo everything somehow, and then Peter wakes up on Titan by himself, like, what the hell just, ha-? you know, where'd everybody go? Oh, so I, I don't know. I had not thought of that. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I almost think that there does have to be some kind of snap reset where everybody ends up back home somehow. Mm-hmm. Whether that be through time travel or, you know, just wish fulfillment of what is the snap, really? Do you just think something and then snap your fingers and make it happen and all the stones just read your mind? Because if that's the case, you can just say everybody's at home having a cup of tea and they don't remember anything bad happened. Snap, and that's how it happens. I don't know. So that's that that pivotal moment that's going to be very... It's almost going to determine whether the movie succeeds or fails because some people might call foul, you know, if it all like the dream sequence. Nobody wants a dream sequence, right? That can't happen. Mm -hmm. So a time travel almost sometimes feels like a cheat nowadays where I almost think that they have to have something more substantial than just time travel. So, yeah, I really don't know how it's all going to break down, but I'm very, very eager to get in the theater and see. But before we we exit here, we forgot to talk about that really cool audio ad that you came across. Yeah, so this is really good, and I I like when advertisers play the smart card instead of the greed card. And they could have very easily just made a two-minute ad about a a car, and they didn't. They made a minute 45 Captain Marvel moment that seemed like it should have came straight out of the MCU with a 15-second product placement at the end of it. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's more, much more feels like a piece of entertainment than it does a commercial. So that's the good thing. The overall gist of the ad is that Captain Marvel is back on Earth and this is her debriefing to get her caught up to speed on how things have changed on Earth over the last 20 to 30 years. And one of those gags includes, instead of when you order food out, instead of eating it right away, we now have to take a picture of it. And she grabs her phone and takes a photo of her her sandwich. And then Captain Marvel replies, oh, wow, the photo hut must just have a mile-long line. And the girl just kind of shakes her head like, we'll get to that later. And she keeps going through this debriefing of all these things that have changed. So the humor is very good. Uh, Goose makes a quick little appearance, and and there's some humor there. And then the last 15 seconds, there's a, a little product placement. And overall, it's enjoyable and uh i didn't feel like an ad as you're watching it until until the very very end so it's worth seeking out i believe it's just called debriefing Mm -hmm. captain marvel audi ad Mm. should should get you to the right place to see this well definitely check that out and speaking of checking things out we'd love it if you check out the other podcasts we do here at the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, we have Disney Dish with Lentesto. We have, of course, Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. And thanks again to, for Drew for providing the audio that we, we played on today's show. Uh, we have Universal Joint with uh, Dustin Fuse. We have I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. And, of course, Looking at Lucasfilm with Danza Hare. And, we're God, we're still unpacking Star Wars Celebration in Chicago. You could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend the show. Or if you really like what we do here, you can subscribe to Bandcamp. Beyond that, I want to thank you folks for listening and have a good night. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.